more than any other time of year, the Christmas season is a time when innocence is on display. We see innocence in children's faces, whether they're our children or our grandchildren or the neighborhood children. We see innocence in their noses as they're pressed up against window panes, anxiously waiting for grandma and grandma to come visit. We see innocence in their hopeful, believing eyes as they still believe in the magic of Christmas and they are torn between trying to stay up late on Christmas Eve or sleeping fast to somehow bring Christmas morning here sooner. Innocence is on display around this time of year with every snowfall. We don't get a lot of them around here, but we wish we had more. But when I see snowfall and it's it's unmarred by dragging footprints, unblackened by tire tracks and exhaust fumes, I see a symbol, a picture of God's innocence. And we see the world shrouded, blanketed in this hope of innocence. And we, we see the potential of what the world could be, what it once was, what it will be when Christ returns again. And it, we just we long for that time when when innocence will fall like snow and cover this planet and purify all of the, the sinful hurt and the brokenness and, um, and, and, and the hurt that is, that is marring the world. Around this time of year, we're reminded of times that seemed more innocent. It almost feels like we're in a Rockwellian painting when carolers come by. Now carolers don't go by anymore. They'll get yelled off your property. But there was a time when they would go by and you would give them apple cider or uh, what's the hot apple cider? Apple cider's hot, right? And uh, you'd give it to them and that would be your thank you. But it's this time of year still, even still, where you have a little more goodwill towards family and even strangers. But of all the things this time of year that there's no other symbol of innocence as strong as that Christmas portrait that we carry in our hearts, the the scene of a dirty stable and an exhausted Mary and a relieved Joseph looking into a manger. And we stand behind them and we peer over their shoulders and we see what they see. The baby, Jesus. And we sing of what the angels sang. And we speak of what the shepherds spoke. And in that manger hay and and within that swaddling clothes, still lying there, if you have eyes to see it, is the most innocent expression imaginable. We follow Mary and Joseph's gaze and we see what makes them weep. We see the baby, Jesus. Why did Jesus come as a baby? What what do we have to learn from the infant Jesus? We know that there's a lot to learn from the teaching Jesus. There's a lot that we learn from the healing Jesus. There's a lot that we learn from the dying Jesus. But are there any lessons that are reserved for us to learn from the infant Jesus? Those answers, I believe there is. And those answers is going to be our point of focus These three Christmas sermons. Many pastors, and I won't slag them, they only have one Christmas sermon a year. I refuse. We're going to have three this year. 
And each time we're going to look at what can we learn from the infant Jesus. And I'll tell you where we're going these next three weeks. Today we're going to look at the baby Jesus and we will see, and we will see innocence extended for what is more innocent than a baby. Next week we will look in that manger cradle and we'll see Jesus and we will see dependence demonstrated for what is more vulnerable and what is more needy than a baby. And Jesus demonstrated the spiritual dependence we ought to have in our lives. And finally, on Christmas Sunday, we're going to look at baby Jesus and we're going to see acquaintance assured. What better evidence do we have to convince us that Jesus is one of us than the fact that He began His life on this planet just like everyone here did as a baby. And so, innocence, dependence, acquaintance, all on display for us to admire and adore this Christmas season through the baby Jesus. Today, though, we're going to peer into the manger and we're going to see the innocence of our Jesus. The innocence of our Jesus. And let's take a moment before we really properly start the sermon and just reflect on our innocent Jesus. He was innocent, of course, at His birth. Those familiar verses... In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone round them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day a baby that has not yet even seen sunrise is for you today. This is the Savior. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who was Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So the sign, the sign that the angels wanted humanity to see was the baby. You know, you hold a baby in your hand. How many people here have held a baby in your hand. Think, And especially if it's your baby. Before I had our own kids, I held babies. Reed, I've held babies before that had no effect on me whatsoever until I held my own baby. And you know what that's like when you hold that fragile innocence in your hand. And you see this baby completely incapable of anything. But somehow it just wicks love out of your heart that you didn't even know existed. There's a depth of love that was previously unknown until you hold this innocent little baby in your arms. Jesus had that innocence as a baby. But what makes Him unique is He never lost that innocence. As innocent as a baby seems to be to us, Jesus truly was He was innocent at His birth. He was innocent through His life. As a boy and as a man, He never erred. He always perfectly walked that razor's edge of excellence. He was just as innocent as a boy as He was as a baby. There were times when His parents thought He was being disobedient. He said, no, no, I haven't done anything wrong here at all. You just had the wrong expectations for me. I'm about my father's business. And then as a man, he had that same innocence. I often wonder, you know, there's times when the disciples would try to shoo the children away from Jesus, and Jesus would always accept it. Let the children come unto me. I wonder if it was a burden for Jesus to constantly be 
surrounded by such sinful people. And I wonder if there was momentary relief when, even though we know children are sinful, they're not as sinful as me, I know, for him to have this exhale as the children come around him and he, he's surrounded by innocence, but yet his innocence exceeds them all. This grown man walking down the pathway that John the Baptist pointed and said, everyone look, here is the Lamb of God. He saw Jesus and he projected upon him for all to see the innocence, unblemished purity of a little baby lamb. Jesus was innocent at his birth through his life. And even at his death, Jesus was innocent. And we see six distinct proclamations of his innocence at the time of his death. This is very interesting. Pilate, his judge, said, I find no guilt in him. Judas, his betrayer, said, I've betrayed innocent blood. The Jews, who were his accusers, found no guilt in him, according to Acts. And it says they sought testimony against him and found none. They knew he was innocent. Pilate's wife told her husband, don't have anything to do with this righteous man. The thief, who was his fellow executee, says this man has done nothing wrong. And the centurion, who was his executor, afterwards said, certainly this man was innocent. Never were there so many proclamations of innocence on a man's execution than there was for Jesus Christ. So Jesus was innocent. But what, what is our touch point with this innocence? Surely, surely there's something more for us than a once-a-year look into the manger. So I want to invite you to turn to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll look at verse 18. We'll start in verse 18. And we're going to examine a little more closely the innocence of Jesus in specifically how, how it connects to our life. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So it must be insisted upon here, his innocence is our only hope. His innocence is our hope. This is critical. Notice it has it right there, right alongside of faith. Our hope and our faith are in God. And they're equally critical. You must come into this place with all of your hope on Christ and specifically on His innocence. We see His innocence on display with His precious blood like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. When I was up in Wisconsin, there was a a single man... And he loved Jesus, 
and um, one, he was just—he was always very excited about Jesus, constantly, and, and he would get worked up. He said, "Ryan, we had just a little little bitty church house, you know." And he said, "Ryan, on the exterior of these doors, we should put a sign above the doors that say, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here,' because he wanted everyone that came in to have their hope in nothing else than Jesus Christ and His purity and His." Innocence, And we didn't put that sign up because we knew that would be a little foolish. But the sentiment is true. Just as surely as you walk into here, you would never put your faith in anything other than Jesus Christ. So too, don't put your hope in anything other than Jesus Christ. We so often attach our hope to what we see as short-term solutions. We see we've got a big problem. It's not a short-term problem. But our only hope is in the innocence of Jesus. We put our hope in His innocence because innocence is missing in the world today, in our lives. God, God gives an assessment of humanity. He says innocence is missing. I'm, I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 59. And, and as I read from that, what I want you to do is I don't want you to turn there. I just want you to close your eyes. Jackson, don't fall asleep. I know it's risky, a pastor asking people to close their eyes on a Sunday morning, but I want you to close your eyes because I want you to devote your faculties to just listening to this passage where God describes the state of the world, and he's very descriptive. So as you listen to this, create those images in your mind, but also recognize, see, that this is, we see this description in the world today, but also, as I read this passage, don't uh, don't distance yourself from, from the condemnation here. Remember, you, you've contributed to this world just as anyone else did. But listen to God's assessment of a lack of innocence in the world. This is from Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue muttered wickedness. Maybe we can update that and say your thumbs have tweeted deception. Your Facebook posts have projected things that aren't true. Your mouses have clicked on things that are ungodly. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch serpents' eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and the deeds of violence are in their hands. It's a picture of just like a spider weaves a web. We weave webs of sin and then we try to clothe ourselves in it to shield ourselves from the condemnation of God and others, but it is futile. Their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Do you have thoughts of iniquity? Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us. And the righteous does not overtake us. We hope for light. And behold, darkness. We hope for brightness. 
But we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We growl like bears. It's not a ferocious growl. That's like a grumble growl. We moan and moan like pigeons. We hope for justice, but there is none. We hope for salvation, but it is far from us. Why? For our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us. We know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. We see that today. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. So if you even try to aim for righteousness, you become assaulted. Now listen to this. This is the Lord's assessment. The Lord saw it, and it displeased Him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Innocence is missing. But look, put your eyes on verse 18 and 19. We see innocence not only is missing, innocence is required. In verse 19, it says that the precious blood of Christ was like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We know from our Old Testament history that in order to cover sins in the Old Testament, they had to sacrifice a lamb. Why a lamb? You ever think about that? There were other animals that were sacrificed, but there are multiple times in Scripture where a lamb is prescribed, and not just any lamb, but a lamb that was without spot, a lamb that did not have blemish. In fact, and there's many, many passages you can read, but one of them is Deuteronomy 15.21 that it says, if it has any blemish, or if it is blind, or lame, or any blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord. See, these lambs that were sacked, you didn't, you didn't get the gnarled old goat that would eat children's hair and knock down fences. You didn't get the bull that was old and ornery and would charge you if you got in its field. The sacrificial system was not an opportunity to get rid of the problematic livestock. You took the most innocent out there. You took that which was most pleasing, most harmless. A lamb, a baby lamb, never hurt anybody. He, he, he chose to, to prescribe the sacrifice of something that was sweet and innocent. What if he had prescribed the, you know, let's sacrifice possums. No objections here, right? We would love it. I've swerved off the road to hit possums before. Nobody likes, nobody likes a possum. Anyone here ever have a pet possum? No. We, we had a pet lamb. Anyone here ever have a pet lamb before? You ever petted a lamb before? Anyone here ever pet a possum? No, not if you have all your fingers still. It was the sacrifice of something that was innocent. Innocence was required. And Jesus fit that bill of someone that was innocent. Again, in Isaiah chapter 59, it says, It displeased the Lord that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to judge. Then His own arm brought Him salvation. And His right hand upheld Him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And a Redeemer will come 
to Zion. When God looked and saw there was no man that's innocent that can stand in the gap, He provided from Himself the man. Innocence is required of us. Innocence is missing in the world. But in verse 18 of 1 Peter, we see the innocence is exchanged. He uses the word ransom. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers. The ransom is, this is a, a figurative ransom, but it's a literal rescue. It's a, what is a ransom? It's an exchange of goods for a life. Right? A child is kidnapped. And the threat is this, unless you give us X amount of money, you will never see your child again. That's what a ransom is. And figuratively speaking, we were all ransomed. We, we, we were all under the penalty of death, but no amount of money would save us. No amount of money would rescue us. No silver or gold, because they're perishable, according to verse 18. It was only with that which is imperishable, the precious blood of Christ, where we find our salvation and innocence is exchanged. God gives His innocence and we get our life back. Our new life, really. And notice again, I don't want you to miss it, at the end there of verse 21, so that your faith and hope are in God. Your hope is as critical as your faith. So, His innocence is our hope. Secondly, we see, and we can go back to verses 13 through 17, that His innocence is our aim. Not only is His innocence our hope, His innocence is our aim. And we'll go considerably quicker through the second point, so we have time for the third. But note how not only His innocence is our hope, but His innocence is our aim. Verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace of that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed. There's, there's an obligation given to us knowing that we've been ransomed by this precious, innocent blood of Jesus. And because we've been redeemed by that innocent blood, we have aim for the same innocence. And just quickly, I want to just highlight some words that jump out to me in this text. Uh, first of all, I see the words prepared and sober minds. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. The old King James, you remember what it says, right? It says, gird up the loins of your mind. What does that mean? Gird up your loins. That doesn't mean hike up your underwear. They had, like, if they were going into battle or work, they had the long robes and they had to hoist them up so they could move their legs. If I were a translator of Scripture, which I'm not, but I'm fairly confident that I've got a better translation for this verse, only this verse, it would be this. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. Paul, uh, Peter is saying you need to roll up the sleeves of your mind because what you're about ready to do here is going to require some mental work. When I'm preaching, you'll notice if I'm not wearing a jacket, my sleeves are always rolled up. I don't. I just. I feel like I'm, I'm accomplishing something. I need to have my sleeves rolled up. And Peter is saying, "Roll up your the sleeves of your mind. Get ready because what I'm asking you to do requires some mental labor. So have your mind sober for what I'm asking you to do. And what does he say? Set your hope fully 
on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's that word hope again. Set your hope fully on the grace. We need to be fully hoping in Christ, not partially. And it's the grace that attaches us to this innocence of Jesus. You know that, right? It's the grace that attaches us. Somehow we have more confidence in the grace that will get us to heaven than we do in the grace that will bring obedience currently in our life. It's the same grace. It holds us to that righteous path. And God is probably wondering, why don't you use more of the grace? You know, we have a brick house, so when we put up our Christmas lights, we use the hot glue gun. And I saw that's how they do it down in Texas, and so that's how we hang our Christmas lights, and it works. But you can't be skimpy on the glue. And the boys, for the first time this year, they were up on the ladders, and they were helping me. And it took me a while. I'd go back, and I'd look, and they have just a little dollop of glue. And i tell them, listen, I'm not going to be mad at you. You can put as much glue as you want. Cover each and every bulb in glue. We want this to stay attached. We don't want it to fall down later. Use as much glue as you desire. And God looks down at us and says, I, I ask you to walk in obedience, but I'm not, I don't leave you hanging. I give you as much grace as you want. Just use as much grace as you need. Don't refuse any of the grace. And yet, what do we do? We refuse the grace. When we choose not to access the Word of God, when we choose not to go to the Lord in prayer, when we trust our own wisdom, when we walk in our flesh, we follow our old sinful desires... God's saying the grace is there. Just trust in it. Just fully hope in the grace that's coming. The word obedient nonconformity jumps out at me as we look at our aim towards innocence. Uh, look what he says in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed. Now a lot of us, you know, there's kind of two groups of people. There's those that just want to fit in no matter what. And then there's those that are nonconformists and they want to stick out no matter what, right? How many of you as a high schooler went through a nonconformity stage? Raise your hand if that's you. I See, I don't believe it. I see one person raising their hand. Surely there's one. When I was in high school, I remember I, I went through a trench coat phase. I don't know why. My older brother's friends had trench coats. And so in the middle of summer, I'd wear a trench coat. That was just my thing. But this, this says you're being obedient when you're not conforming, but not a nonconformity to normalcy. It's not that you're not conforming to the things around you. It's not conforming to what? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He has called you holy, so you also be holy. We are obedient when we're not conforming to our previous nature. We're not conforming to ourselves. We're not conforming to our previous passions. Now, we follow a different set of passions that were given to us by the innocence of Christ. Um, and what other words? Oh, the last, last words that jump out to me are fear and holiness. Um, it says that we need to be holy as God is holy. It says, and that's our aim. That's what we're shooting for. That's, we know, we see the example of holiness in Christ's life. We see that innocence in the major and we aim for that in our lives currently. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of this exile. So fear is just that, that sobriety of intent and a, a sobriety of uh, reverence in our desire to behave obediently. So we have innocence as our aim. Uh, Christ's innocence is our hope. 
But before uh, we end this sermon, we need to answer the question, how do we close that gap? We see Christ's innocence. We know we need to be that innocent. He said, we were commanded, be holy like I am holy. How do we close that gap? And this is the last point that's critical. So don't, don't put down your pens. Don't disengage your brains just now. This is too important to miss. Christ's innocence, as we, as we see it in the manger, His innocence is our hope. His innocence is our aim. But His innocence is our innocence. His innocence is our innocence. Literally. That's what, that's, we receive His innocence. And we see it right here in verses 22 through 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So here we see our souls are purified. Our hearts are pure. And notice how our souls are purified. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. This isn't accumulated obedience. This isn't, okay, I'm I'm obedient here, and man, now I'm even more obedient on Tuesday, and if I get enough obedience stacked up, then I'll get this purified soul. This obedience that comes, uh, obedience to the truth, what it is is obedience of faith to the truth of the gospel. It's just responding to the gospel. That's what it is. We see that throughout this book in 1 Peter. But we see that we are purified in our, in our soul, we are purified in our heart. And also, notice it says, a sincere and, uh, obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And so just as an aside, one of God's great purposes in purifying you is to express His love through you to others. But look what other evidence we have that we've been purified, that Christ's innocence actually is our innocence. Look at verse 23. Since you have been born again, so there our minds go back to the manger where Christ was born and we see His innocence, and now we are born again just like a baby has innocence. Now we are given a spiritual innocence. Not of, we're born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So we don't have our Father's genetic material forming us. Rather, we have Jesus Christ's spiritual genetics infusing us in this second and rebirth of our lives with innocence. And notice it says, not of perishable seed, but imperishable. And I think this goes back to what we see in verse 18 where it says the money that you were ransomed with was not perishable money but the precious blood of Christ we see this is parallel to that thought we're born again not with the perishable seed of a human man but with the imperishable blood of the innocent Jesus Christ through the living and abiding word of God and so we see also look at verse 24 all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass the grass withers and the flower falls. So this is a reminder that in ourselves and in our flesh, we're, gonna, we're not going to last long. Every accomplishment we could ever uh, hope to fulfill will soon be forgotten. If you're going through that uh, devotional, the Christmas Code, one of them is talking about, do you remember what your great-grandfather's full name is? Do you know anything about your great-grandfather? Chances are your children's grandchildren will know nothing about you whatsoever. They might remember your name because human flesh is like grass. It perishes. Our accomplishments are like the flowers of the grass. They fade away. And in our lives, we feel like, man, 
I, I hear this sermon and I'm worshiping and in my devotions I feel, I know, I, I feel that I'm infused with the innocence of Christ. But then I walk out into the world and I lose it quickly. But look at the assurance we have here. The innocence is living, it's abiding, it's remaining It won't be forfeited. It is attached and resilient. Our source is also our future. Though in our flesh we may fade, the living and abiding Word of God remains forever. And so thank God for the innocence of Jesus. It's our hope. It's our aim. And His innocence is ours to possess if you will have it. I named this sermon Innocence Extended. Innocence Extended. And what that indicates is, listen, it's offered, but it's not forced. The innocence of Christ is provided, but He's not going to jam it down your throat. It's yours to take if you will take it. And so I would be remiss to not, at the end of this sermon, ask, have you taken the innocence of Christ. It's been extended. It was on display in the manger. It was never lost in His life. But in His death, it was extended to you if you would take it. And if you have not, what, what a perfect time of year to first, for the first time, put your faith in Jesus to say, Lord, I need Your innocence. I know I'm not innocent, but I know that by the cross, by the blood, it's been provided to me. And Lord, I depend on it. That's my hope. I believe in it. And if you have accepted His, invi- his extension of innocence... Christmas calls us back to that sanctity of our calling. The innocence of baby Jesus ought to be on display in our lives. The innocence of Jesus ought to be display in our choices and in our actions, in our words, and in our behavior. So let's take time here at the close of this sermon to express our desire for His purity and His innocence to be on display through us. And we're going to do that through a song. I'm going to ask you to stand.